Hey, hey, so thankful you're here. All of you online, all of you in-house, you know you're welcome in this place. Okay, this coming Wednesday, March the 1st, it will be exactly, starting that day, it'll be exactly 40 days until Easter. So, we have an opportunity to deny ourselves something physically for the purpose of growing in something spiritually. Now, that's the basic meaning behind fasting, fasting, letting go of a physical pleasure to gain a spiritual benefit. So what do you say? Let's do this. Let's do this. Jesus said that his followers would have periods of fasting between his first coming and his second coming, and you've got three days to decide what you want to fast from starting on Wednesday. Now, it can be anything physically that you enjoy. Now, let me explain. Fasting from something I don't enjoy is no fast. You understand that. For nearly 60 years plus, I have fasted from lima beans and Brussels sprouts, except for a couple of rare occasions. But that physical fast has brought about absolutely no spiritual benefit because those bitter green little atrocities have never brought me any pleasure. So find something that you enjoy. And then for the sake of spiritual growth, give it up for 40 days. Now, it might be some kinds of food. It might be some kinds of drink. It might be movies or social media. It might be hobbies or entertainment. What you decide, whatever that might be, then make a decision to replace that, that time that you would enjoy that or the resource that you would have given to that with some spiritual activity like prayer or Bible study or reading or replace it with meditation or maybe some alone walk, walks with God replace it with maybe listening to some worship songs or some acts of service. You know, I was just thinking, make a list of some people you know who would benefit from a cup of coffee and a conversation and make some appointments. Find some young parents or young single parents with little ones and say, hey, this night is your night. You go do what you need to do. I'm going to free babysit your little ones. Choose something you really enjoy physically and fast from it while replacing it with something good for the benefit of others and for growing spiritually. Okay? Let's do this. All right, with that said, I want you to open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 7. Now, of all of Jesus' letters that he wrote, all seven that he revealed in this vision that John was having, oh, this one is my favorite. This is my favorite of all the letters. John MacArthur notes that Jesus Christ, the holy, true, sovereign, omnipotent Lord of the church, found nothing to condemn in the Philadelphia church, must have been a joyous encouragement to them. Well, I guess so. All right, the city of Philadelphia dates back to, as far as we can tell from the historical accounts, to about 189 B.C. when King Eumenes II of Pergamum 
established it and named it after the love that he had for his brother, Attalus II. Philadelphia is the name that he gave the town, which literally means brotherly love or the brother that I love. This city is located on a broad volcanic plain that provided rich soil for agriculture, and it was known as the gateway to the east for commercialism and also for the expansion of the Greek language and culture. Now, the downside to this area is its subjection to frequent earthquakes. You remember just two weeks ago, they had that huge earthquake in Turkey. So the city was completely destroyed of Philadelphia. It was completely destroyed in A.D. 17, and then with the help of the Roman government, it was rebuilt. Only two of Jesus' seven letters received not a word of chastisement. This Philadelphia church and the Smyrna church that Nathan preached on five weeks ago, or however long ago that was. Jesus didn't get angry much. But when he did, it was usually because someone was being overlooked or mistreated. And what was going on with his followers in Philadelphia brought a rage in our Lord. Betrayal can be an excruciatingly evil experience. Painful. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. For centuries prior to this letter... Israel would have its pattern of rejecting the Lord and then they'd be overthrown and then they go into captivity and then you know the, the, the cycle that the Israelites would have. Now, if they weren't taken into captivity, it was probably because they fled and they would flee to surrounding cities in Egypt or Greece or Asia Minor or other places. Now, when these displaced Israelites were in those foreign lands, because they were able to escape captivity, they would want to try to reestablish some kind of spiritual connection. So in many of these cities, even though it wasn't in Israel, they would build synagogues to try to bring that spiritual community back together, give their kids and grandkids what they needed. Now, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles and disciples just spread out, and they would go beyond the borders of Israel. And one of the first places that they would visit any time they went to a city is they would go to the local synagogue. And generally speaking, since all of the disciples and apostles were Jews, they were most of the time accepted into the synagogues, at first at least. And some of the synagogues would, would some of the members of the synagogue would end up putting their trust in Jesus. And they would become followers. But <laughs> some of the members of the synagogue would not, obviously. But as this message spread to the Gentiles, and they began to spread into the synagogue assemblies with the understanding that Jesus was, in fact, the only way to God, and in him there was no longer any distinction between Jew or Gentile, well, you can see the rub that that created for some of these Orthodox Jews. They didn't like hearing all of that. And they thought that lines of distinction between those who were truly of Abraham's seed and those who were just, you know, coming in, being grafted in here and there and everywhere, they wanted them to know who the true children really were. So much so, that scripture that you're looking at, some of the synagogues actually began closing their doors and excluding anyone who claimed Jesus the Nazarene as Lord. That's something that happened in John chapter 9. That's what you're looking at. 
Now, biblical scholar Joe Stowell explained it this way. They were kicked out. They were alienated from family and friends. Because the synagogue was the center of the social life, the sense of exclusion was deep. And what made matters even worse was the predicament this was putting into the followers of Jesus. Here's the explanation. Roman, Rome did not want any other religion except the worship of Caesar. But in order to keep the peace and the riots at bay in the Israelite areas, they allowed them to have their synagogues and they allowed them to worship God. And they didn't have to say, a lot of the emperors didn't force them to say that Caesar was Lord. It was just kind of a caveat that they gave the Jewish people saying, okay, we're not, we're not going to do this. So, in A.D. 83, now remember Jesus wrote the, gave this vision to John probably in the mid-90s A.D. In A.D. 83, some Jewish rabbis issued a decree that it was blasphemy to pray in the name of Jesus. So look how this plays out. If the Christ followers were allowed in the synagogues and they enjoyed that protection in the synagogue under Roman law that the rest of the Jews did. But now, if these Jews who are following this edict that you cannot pray in the name of Jesus, would well, you see what happened? They were kicking all these people out that were following Jesus. So if you're kicked out and Rome says, okay, Judaism, you are who you are, but now you're kicked out and you're claiming Jesus, that's another religion. Do you see what they were doing? They were actually taking their names off of some of the synagogue registries, and they were kicking these people out, and Rome doesn't recognize any other religion. And so if you're not under the protection of the synagogue, you're out there, your life's at stake. Okay, the unbelieving Jew did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. You got that. They did not believe him to be separate and right. They didn't believe Jesus had power and authority. They rejected Jesus, and I'm telling you, they kicked their Jesus followers out. So Jesus, when he sees his people unable to pray because the Father's house has been turned into a den of thieves from corrupt money changers, or when Jesus sees a man with a withered hand and the leaders don't want Jesus to heal that poor man with that lifelong suffering ailment because it happens to be the Sabbath, or when Jesus heals a man who was blind and can now see, and then he tries to explain that it was Jesus that did this, and then he's actually kicked out of the synagogue. That's the verse that you read. The parents were so afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. Part of it wasn't just to lose their community. Part of it was they knew they were exposed to the Romans. When Jesus finds out this is going on with his people, he moves heaven and earth to find them and to restore them and to comfort them and to give back what was wrongfully taken from them. Now that is the background to this sixth letter to the church at Philadelphia. So look at the screens. Let's go through it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, 
No one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I'll make them come. And fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what he says to the church, what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you sense Jesus' compassion here? I mean, he... He can't say enough to these people who are going through this. He has such a heart for people who are excluded, especially for people who are excluded because they're following him. It's just like, let me at him. Let me, give, let me, hug, him. Let me hug him. Let me, let me let him know that I got him. It's just, this letter is just oozing with compassion. This letter really is straightforward too. I mean, Jesus wants them to know who he is, and he wants them to know what he'll do, and he wants them to know who they're going to become, how he'll change them. Now, Jesus begins by saying, I'm the Holy One. The article is actually in the Greek, the NIV that I just read to you. I read that because that's what I grew up with, and it just flows, and I'm, I like it. I'm partial. But it actually, has, it actually says in the Greek, I am the Holy One. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm divine. You know, the angels that surround the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his They're doing that to me. When he says, I am the holy one, this was a huge statement. Jesus is holy. He's not selfish. He's not conceited. He's not lustful. He's not gluttonous. He's not careless. He's not cruel. He's holy. He's completely different from the ugly, t ugly tendencies of fallen man. Jonathan Edwards once said, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute for no other attribute is truly lovely without this. Yes, he is a God of love, but he's a God of holy love. He doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. That's why his love for you never changes. He's holy. So Jesus says, the one that's speaking to you, he's holy. And then he says, I'm also the true one. Jesus says, I'm not some copied imitation. I'm the authentic original. Jesus is the true OG. I mean, that's it. He's, he's the first one. Jesus embodied truth. He was the genuine article. Look at this verse from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. The law is only a shadow 
of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. You guys, the law and the prophets were a shadow cast from who? From him. From him. He wrote that. He embodied that. Everything that was perfect about the law was him. They all pointed to Christ. He is the true one. And then Jesus adds, who holds the key of David? And every Jew would know that no one could make that claim unless they were the promised Messiah. No one could claim that. In the first part of this vision, in the first chapter that we looked at just briefly at the beginning of this series, Jesus said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. And then he tells John, add to it to this church in Philadelphia that I hold the key to David, which understood that was God's kingdom where he lived, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I have the authority and I have the power of the afterlife. It's not a small statement. You who have been kicked out, Jesus says, this is the one you follow. Those keys will open what I want opened, Jesus says, and what I choose to shut. In other words, Jesus says, I know you've been shut out of the local synagogue, but no door can be shut that I don't shut, and my door is wide open to my Father's kingdom. And I think Jesus was also saying something very merciful when he said that those unbelieving Jews would come and bow down to them and know that it is, in fact, true that God does love them. You know what I think he was saying? I think he was saying, I'm about to open a door to the people who are persecuting you, and they're going to come to faith. Can you imagine the hope of thinking that Jesus was, if, if, they, if, I'm, if I'm understanding this scripture accurately, can you imagine the hope that somebody would say, hey, you know the, the persecution that you've been facing, those, those guys who have been coming after you, kicking you out of the synagogue, you know that? I'm going to bring them around, and they're going to see that I really do yell of you, and they're going to put their faith in me too. Man. Jesus also told them that he would keep and protect them through the upcoming trials. I'm not sure exactly all that's involved there, but I just know this. Whatever Jesus brings you to, he will get you through. He'll get you through it if he brings you to it. Jesus says you'll be like pillars in God's temple. Here we have a word of stability and permanence. You'll never leave the presence of God. This had to be especially encouraging to these people who were <laughs> living in a land of earthquakes and where public shunnings were done all over the place. And then Jesus ends the letter by giving them what they probably needed most. Jesus says, I will write on you the name of my God. It was such a beautiful word of ownership and identification. Jesus says, you may feel dispersed right now. You may feel locked out. You may feel abandoned. But you belong to my Father. You're his child. You bear his name. And then Jesus said, I'm also going to write on you the name 
of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from, from my God. Jesus saying, I don't want you just to know whose you are and who you belong to. I also want you to know where you belong. So here we have a word of citizenship. A permanent home prepared just for them. Imagine how comforting that would be, especially to be isolated. And then Jesus says this, I will write, I will also write on you my new name. Did you know Jesus, Jesus has a new name? You know what? I don't think we know it yet. I think that's something still to come. Jesus is saying that they wouldn't simply be acquaintances. We know that, he, that Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Yeshua. Yeshua is what he was called by his folks. We know that he bears Christ, which is the anointed one, the Messiah, the one sent from God. We understand Jesus Christ, but I, I think we're going to learn a new name. And maybe the reason we don't know it yet is because if it was uttered, it would just knock us flat. <laughs> We'd just go, oh, what a name. Relationship. In other words, there's coming a time when you're going to have a name given to you that's my real name that will actually allow you to come closer to me. You'll know me more fully. There's that passage in 1 John chapter 3. I think it's the first verse that says that when we see him, we will be like him. We'll know him more fully. So you may have been kicked out of God's, I'm sorry, you may have been kicked out of man's kingdom, but that's because Jesus says, I want you to be a part of my kingdom. Francis Jane Van Alston, more commonly known as Fanny J. Crosby, was an American mission worker, poet, lyricist, and composer, a prolific hymnist writing more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. And of all of her accomplishments, she did it while blind. She was born with sight, but then she took some kind of an illness at a young age the doctor that came was later to be discovered as a quack, but he, he treated her eyes with some mustard or something. She ended up losing her sight. The, the sickness went away, but they found him, and he left, and whatever. A preacher came to her, well-meaning, I'm sure, and said, I think it a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And her response to him was, you know, if I could change one thing, I would change the fact that I was born with sight. And he, he said, what? She said, I wish I was born blind the way I am now. Because then when I got to heaven, the first face that would ever gladden my sight would be that of my Savior. Okay, we got an unusual person here, all right? Y'all, one of her most famous hymns is called to God be the glory. And it's got this lyric that she captured. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Jesus has a heart for people who have been ignored, rejected, mistreated, and excluded. 
And if that's you, at any point along the way in your life, this is your letter. This is your letter. Because Jesus wants you to never forget whose you are and where you belong and who you are to more fully know. Jesus, we are so moved by the fact that you are drawn to people who have it rough on earth. I know this room is filled with them. People who grew up in mistreatment. People who have struggled. People who have had unfair people all their adult life. And yet they're still wanting to know you. I pray that the truth of this letter that you wrote to those Christians in Philadelphia would so sink into all of us that we would know that you see and you've got us covered. Remind us again and again that we are who you say we are. Hear us as we affirm that in song. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, people, let's stand.